0: Okay, everyone, I'm really excited about today's episode. It's a special episode for Giving Tuesday. So if you're unfamiliar with Giving Tuesday, after Black Friday, after Cyber Monday, comes Giving Tuesday where thousands and thousands of nonprofits ask people for money. It's almost like their own Black Friday. So it's a huge day for the nonprofit sector And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to launch this conversation that I have with my friend and former colleague, Jonathan Barona. Jonathan is a career philanthropy professional with over 15 years of experience in nonprofits, foundations, and social ventures. He's currently the Chief Fiscal Sponsorship Program Officer at Movement Strategy Center. In his role, he supports BIPOC, LGBTQIA, and women-led social justice and environmental justice organizations through fiscal sponsorship, back office, and capacity building services. Jonathan is committed to disrupting philanthropy and exploring new ways of deploying capital for social good. He also serves as a board member for Fruitful Commons, Earth Day Austin, and the Austin Youth River Watch, and represents District 3 on Austin's Zero Waste Advisory Commission. Jonathan and I have a great conversation about disrupting philanthropy, what that actually means, and how we can all be a part of it. So let's jump in. Well, thanks, Jonathan. I'm so glad to have you on the Grow Wild podcast.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having me, Mindy. I really appreciate it.
0: So, I want to start with a personal question. And what what is your story? How did you end up in philanthropy?
1: I so I grew up actually traveling around the world, living in uh, a lot of different places, which I think you know. You know, lived in Australia, lived in Panama, lived in Israel, um, and always thought I would go kind of the corporate route, which is what my father did. Um, went to school for business marketing, got out of school and was like, I'm not doing that. So actually just randomly found a job with an organization working with Latino college students or Latino middle school students in rural Georgia and creating a space to have conversations around going to college uh, and around kind of like their future and advancement opportunities and all of that. And then that just kind of stuck with me. Um, So that led to a long time with that organization and then moving on to other, you know, more kind of philanthropy type work. Um, So it's really been ever since college that I've been in this work. And it was because of these rural, you know, middle school Latino children in Georgia. So, yeah.
0: Did did you see the impact of philanthropy there? Is that what kind of drove you to continue?
1: yeah I think you know when uh, with the way that I grew up, right where we were traveling a lot, we had you know, lots of different opportunities and got to see lots of different people and cultures um coming back to the us to go to college and then you know in this role kind of realizing how you know lots of Latino communities didn't have the same opportunities didn't have you know really that kind of vision or hope for their lives right uh really changed my perspective on where and what the us was uh and then talking to you know these 13 14 year old kids who were like this is the first time i've ever had anyone like care about what i'm doing or my future this is the first space that i've ever had for me to talk and be with like my people and talk about what's going on in our community i think that really shifted my mindset on what philanthropy was and the impacts that it could actually make.
0: This is a conversation you and I have had over many a happy hour throughout our friendship. (laughs) But do you think that the role of philanthropy, where the affluent give to the non-affluent, is inherently flawed or fueling inequity?
1: Yes. (laughs) I mean, it, it is, right? Like, I think when you think about the history of philanthropy, it was just a... A place for rich white women to hang out and feel good, right, mm-hmm. uh, and create tax benefits for their benefactor husbands, if I can say that in this in 2022.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the past. It's the truth, it's,
1: right? <laughs> uh, so, like the the way that it was all constructed, I think, is inherently flawed. But I also think that there is a you know, I tend to believe that people are generally good, right? I think that um, if, you, if you believe that, I feel like there is a desire for people to make the lives of other folks in their community better. Um, so I do think there is, even though it is a flawed system, it can still be genuine in nature.
0: I feel like what is happening in this podcast often is these ideas of capitalism keep coming in unintentionally Mm -hmm. for me. And I think philanthropy, people don't realize who aren't in it. And I would imagine people listening aren't like diehard philanthropy connoisseurs or whatever, but I feel like it is such a driver of capitalism and the bad parts of it. And I want to believe that it's not but working in foundations where it is rich white women making decisions about poor organizations. It's just like, how do we move from that? What are some, is that doing anything? Can philanthropy really impact system change?
1: Yeah. So I think it's interesting. You kind of went that route because I think it, there is some semantics around how do you define philanthropy, right? Is there a is it capital P philanthropy? So you're talking about, you know, Gates and Bloomberg and like these billionaire uh, kind of philanthropists, right? Um, Monopoly men, or are we talking about, you know, is giving, you know, your, your time and volunteer energy and, you know, small amount of money as like an individual also considered philanthropy. I think if we're talking about like the, you know, huge giant foundations, then yeah, they're inherently flawed, right? I I think you have this issue of people who made money in extractive ways, trying to then give a tiny portion of that out to make themselves feel better and get a tax write-off.
0: Or use it as like laundering reputation, marketing, that sort of thing.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. So it's like, how can you, how can, how how can you actually say that you're it's genuine right to use the word that i use if you created all your wealth through this extractive and kind of you know violence right so yeah i mean i think capital p philanthropy is is challenging for lots of reasons so then what's I the i mean it's not good
0: yeah i i like the idea of of philanthropy as this like democratizing philanthropy where everyone mm-hmm. Really can have a more of a mindset than a, you know, how much wealth you've accumulated or how, you know, what tax write off are you given or what logo is going on this event or whatever it is. Um, do you have some examples of the work that you've done or are doing right now that have shown what it looks to kind of change the paradigm between power over and power with when it comes to philanthropy?
1: yeah so it's it's challenging um but so right now i'm at movement strategy center uh and some of the work that we do is around uh working with big funders and in like participatory grant making frameworks so it's how do you actually allow the people um, who are receiving or would receive the fund uh, the funding decide on how funding gets distributed and what those processes are Um, there's a lot of you know from what i've seen there's kind of Interest and it's it's kind of like trendy in philanthropy to uh, talk about equity in giving and equity in, in, in how applications are done, how reporting is done, how the decision making is done. Um, but all of those frameworks have issues and have different uh, kind of incentive structures that are, you know, perverse.
0: I'm curious what you think about these big companies like Patagonia. And, you know, his recent, the CEO's recent announcement that he was going to give away his company to a trust where all profits were given to climate change action. So, or climate
1: action. I think it's awesome. I think it actually, you know, when you talk about genuine philanthropy, that feels pretty genuine. And also Patagonia has always been like, they were the pioneers of like B Corps, right? And they were always on the side of our company only exists because of natural spaces and therefore we are required or incentivized to protect natural spaces. So I think it aligns really well with the history of Patagonia. I think it's really cool. I think it's it's, that has happened on a small scale in so many different ways and so many different places, but Patagonia is a giant company, right? I think, you know, a small example of this, if you remember, um, I think the San Antonio Community Foundation owns a movie theater, uh, and that movie theater was gifted as a like you can you own the movie theater, you operate it as a movie theater, and all profits go back to the foundation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's the same exact thing. It's just a you know it's popcorn instead of fleeces, I guess, right? Like, but it's it's the same concept.
0: I mean, it's it's very old legacy giving in a sense, Mm right? (laughs) Like there's, it's being framed as this innovative thing when it is innovative in the sense that others, other giants aren't doing this same sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in understanding if that makes sense to legislate.
1: In what sense?
0: In the sense of with great power comes great response or with great amounts of money come great responsibility. So if, you know, if you're making a certain profit every year, I mean, this is where we go into socialism and this is probably where yeah, you and I disagree. disagree. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. where we disagree. <laughs> and I, you know, my mind is not set in stone here. My My mind definitely can be changed because I, again, I'm not, I, I think from a systems level, if we just keep relying on these billionaires to do good how is that ever going to be a sustainable practice moving forward?
1: Right. But so I i mean, I agree with you, but I think that and if we want to get into politics, we can. I think the problem is you. So you say, all right, let's legislate this. Right. But the reason that we have so many billionaires and kind of our capital system has been perverse is because once you have enough resources, you can influence the laws, right? So regulatory capture is is a thing. I think we've talked about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so once you have enough resources, you can influence law. And so you're relying on a system that is already influenced by the people you're trying to affect that. And so it will never, I think, solve your issue in that way. Right. And then, you know, tax dollars. So there's we're working on on some programs with some federal funding. And a big part of what we're trying to kind of address is the fact that you have these, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that go out, billions of dollars that go out to nonprofits, to organizations um, in federal funding, but they all go to like old white established traditional nonprofit organizations. And none of it gets to the people that you and I think kind of deserve funding, right? And so if you legislate what you're talking about, you're just creating an incentive for the people who already have and know how to capture that wealth to just create kind of barriers around accessing that capital once it's in that system. Does that make sense? Um,
0: Yes, it does. So, you know. What you're saying is if we legislate and and make these billionaires pay a percentage or leave a percentage of their company behind, whatever it is, for the greater good, then this will just perpetuate this inequity of big P philanthropy where the old white men are winning and the big foundations right. are winning. And I agree. Perfect. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I agree and I think the idea around legislating has has expanded for me because for me I was like it's just so simple just make everyone do good and you know obviously good right exactly and so I think what needs to happen is is more accountability held in place for these massive resources I mean, I don't even know because so I'm learning about right now where I work, they, you know, we work with government contracts and Mm -hmm. for communications and branding Mm -hmm. and marketing. And um, even though the government is very against using marketing as a term and all of this, but like there's these things that I'm learning about that I had no idea where if a government agency wants to partner with a marketing agency or a consultant or something like that, there is incentive and I believe requirement to, mm-hmm. in, to work with what they call disadvantaged communities or you right. know disadvantaged business. And so on paper, that sounds really great. But in practice, it is a bureaucratic nightmare. Right. And what you see is people shifting the loop, finding the loophole, you know, it's 51% women owned this kind of
1: thing, you know, or, you know, I'm on the zero waste commission, and we see kind of these contracts all the time that have these requirements for, you know, diverse or marginalized community, you know, whatever, however the language is, and so many of them come in that just say no applicants, no, no diverse applicants submitted, no diverse applicants submitted, right? Because the system to actually be in the system and receive those contracts is so convoluted that it excludes people and so the people who are already in there continue to get it and then everyone else can say well we tried we we like made this requirement we added this extra weight but they didn't want it so or nobody was eligible or whatever you know whatever. they
0: didn't come we invited them yeah.
1: We opened the door, you know. Mm-hmm. They just didn't, you know, get in their car and drive over here, right? Like it just. Oh, but they don't have a car. Well, I don't. Whose problem is that? We can't do everything. <laughs> like, so, I think those. The that's the same. That's the same thing I'm talking about around. Like you're trying to use the legislative process. You're trying to use a system that was not built for a specific community of people to help a specific community of people. Mm and so how can you it's like no solution about us or for us without us have you I don't know if if you've ever heard there's some catchier line than what I just said but can you say it slower it's like no solution for us without us or about it or you know so for us but without us so basically saying like if you're going if you're talking about us we should be part of that conversation right so in any community you should be you know talk, the people who are impacted should be part of the conversation otherwise the solution created will never solve the issue and then also it's hard to address a symptom of a system within the system that created the symptom right
0: yeah right and i think that is something that i am learning right now and I need to just like sit and listen because I'm someone who has been a part of the system mm-hmm. and benefited from the system. And, and not I mean, not right. We're all intersectional people and beings but. of all different backgrounds and all different privileges and, you know, disadvantages and stuff. But I think I grasp to the legislative piece as much as I do, because, because I can then go vote and say, I, I, I did something, you know, I'm trying something, right. You know, it also, when you were talking, it brought up this conversation that I had with a founder of, of an agency who helps big organizations, white-led organizations understand, you know, their, their lens and blind spots and all of this stuff. And I think she is one of the few that I've come in contact with that is doing some really transformational stuff in that space Mm -hmm. and what she said was the very nature of using the word inclusion means that you that someone is holding the power over another and including them in the room instead of this mutual understanding that we all belong and I was just like My little marketing brain who's just like, (laughs) DEI, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was like, I want to include everybody. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, blind spot.
1: (laughs) That's exactly it around bringing people to the table. It's like, yeah, but they were not part of the process of creating the table. How do you know they even like that table, right? Like, it's a bigger question than just we have to check these boxes so that we can say we are an equitable foundation, right? right? Like.
0: Do you feel like leaders then need to give up stuff? Those currently in power need to give up or is there room for expansion everywhere?
1: When you say give up, do you mean like older to middle-aged white male CEO needs to you know resign? Or do you mean like that decision that you're able to make unilaterally, you need to give up that decision-making power?
0: I think- Mindy, five years ago, was the former and was like, resign. (laughs) Now I'm thinking just distribute the power a little bit more equitably. Like you could keep your title and you could keep your friendships and you could keep your, you know, galas or whatever. But I think instead of inviting people to the table, being accepting of the fact that you can be invited to like that is true power with when, when it's not like you need to come to my table versus like, where, what tables am I not sitting at? And why am I not sitting at them? Let me go find that out. Like, that's the work I want them to do.
1: Yeah, I I think that's, I think that's interesting. And it makes me think about this summit in Denver, because one of the funders is, is Kimball Musk, who's Elon Musk's brother, right? And so he's in the room. And there's clearly a power dynamic. He's like a a tall white billionaire, right? Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that that he said, you know, as a donor, not a grantee, and not part of, he's part of the DAO, but not one of the grantee members of the DAO. He was like, you know, that decision of how much influence a donor has on this process needs to come from the group. And it's okay if y'all decide that we don't have power, Right. And so I think it's almost like, yes, there is, let's be together in Kumbaya, but then also like understanding from, you know, some of your traditional capital P philanthropists that like, sometimes you're not part of the table, right? And like, that I think is a harder thing for them to do, Mm. uh, because it's easy to be part of a table because you know what, when I talk, everybody listens to me, when... Mm. There's a question, everybody looks at me, but I'm not part of the table and they decide whatever they want. It might not be what I would do. And that I think is where philanthropy fails when it comes to these participatory processes because your big foundation goes, oh yeah, we want it to be equitable and super participatory and everybody get involved and like all of the diverse voices and great. And then here's what I want y'all to do. And when you go, well, actually, I, like you need, you should step out for a second. Like, whoa, whoa, well, 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 hold. Like, let's back it up a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's still my money. Ah, you see, that's the power. The power is, this is still mine. I'm just letting you play, mm-hmm. as opposed to, this mm-hmm. is yours, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a, a more impactful, a more uh, meaningful shift than mm-hmm. to say, come hang out at my table and do what I tell you to do.
0: That's good. I think <laughs> I mean it is because it's it's so rare that I've seen that. I mean I've been in the nonprofit some way adjacent to impact work for 10 years. And mm-hmm. I can truly say I've never seen a white male CEO do that ever. Right. I have seen I have seen others try to do that. But again, it comes down to the one who truly has the power.
1: And I can say, like, I struggle with it, too, even in my role, where I have, you know, a leadership role, I run a team, I have team members who, you know, look at me, like, my my job is to make decisions, right? And like, I get called out, called out on it every now and then it's like, sometimes I'm like, yes, you're right, we should, we need to do more of that. And then sometimes it's like, yeah, no, I just want it to be done this way, right? So it's not easy. But I do think, you know, as I continue to kind of be in the space and think more about it like it really is the only the only way to say yes I'm truly doing this in a participatory equitable you know power sharing even has its like issues as a as a as a term but communal way right
0: it's so interesting because I start to see this dynamic over and over again and when I was in like these in coordinator roles and these smaller roles it was very easy to look up and be like fuck you
1: <laughs> and
0: and now it's way more complicated now as i like climb into leadership roles and and i'm sitting in these spaces and sometimes in the rooms yep and i'm just like it is a balance between leading and saying this is the way this is mm-hmm. my you know i was chosen to be a leader for whatever reason and yeah. truly being equitable and you know because at the end of the day sometimes things just need to get done or mm-hmm. I don't know I just you know I keep going back to that one agency partner that I have worked with now for a, a little over a year and I'm just like power with people is just so I mean I'm I'm curious what what the problem with power sharing is when you say that that's problematic in and of itself
1: in the same way that you're you talked about inclusion, right? Power sharing just indicates like, I have power that I'm willing to give you. A piece oh. of. Mm-hmm. It's just like the language of it is not necessarily, if you, if you actually break it down, it's like, yeah, you, I have power, I'm going to give you a piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's anything wrong with power sharing. And I was just talking about the, it's still coming from a framework of this is mine and you get a piece.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Well, so like just something I'd add. So my very next call, I'm doing a presentation next week around like this equity <laughs> in philanthropy conversation. So it's like very, uh, very kind of appropriate to the to what we're doing. Um, and, you know, part of the conversation and what we're going to talk about today is just, I think, first identifying the places where people have power within philanthropic relationships and actually really calling that out and thinking about it right like where like how does your power show up right it doesn't matter if you're black or Latino or Asian or Native or whatever if you're in philanthropy you have a power over the people who you are you know who you create programming for who you are supporting financially who you' you know who you're giving, Grant to or, or capacity building support whatever it is and so how do you actually create a an inventory of like oh these are the places that my power shows up and then how can we actually start shifting that mm-hmm. um, so i think yeah. that is like the very baseline of it is just even having a clear like self-reflection and understanding of where where the places are that you actually have an exert power over another community that you are quote unquote serving.
0: That's that's a good tactical approach too of just mm-hmm. analyzing what's going on because you know we did talk a lot about the white male ceo but I think also it's just the systems it's the foundations and the nonprofits and that relationship you know like these sort of things that are rooted in just a hierarchical power over you know framework.
1: Well and I mean and it makes sense right like I don't I don't hate them. I don't like hate them for it. Right. Like, I think it makes sense when you think about, oh, I want, I want my white tall middle-aged man to go talk to all these other white, tall middle-aged men so that they can give him money. Right. That makes sense to me. Like, I don't, the short black woman is not going to get as far with the tall white middle-aged men as, as the, as the person that went to college with them Mm -hmm. is, you know, Mm -hmm. that goes skiing with them does. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know from a, Purely practical standpoint, like it makes sense if that's the way that the industry evolved.
0: Yeah, but just because it makes sense does not mean that it is the best. Way. Right,
1: right. But then you could, I, w- I would argue that the issue is not necessarily with who is leading the organization, even though yes, it's with who people with wealth feel comfortable giving their resources to. So it's like on on what side of the on what side of the aisle line whatever is the issue and i would argue that it's with the side of the people who have resources and how they choose to distribute those, right because they believe that oh these resources are mine i worked hard for them um when the case can be made that all like excessive wealth is created through an extractive process practice right and violence and you know violence to the earth violence to people so yeah which i don't know how far down that road we want to go because
0: i mean that's like a whole (laughs) podcast episode you could just go into like exploitive practices labor Mm -hmm. it that's a whole rabbit hole that i'm sure we could go down right (laughs) but i do want to be cognizant of Mm -hmm. time and um we talked a lot about heavy stuff so i want to end on a joyful note so are you ready for some joyful wildfire questions. I'm ready. The first question is, what is a snapshot or a moment in your day that brings you a measurable joy?
1: If I had to pick what is a a snapshot in my day that brings me joy, and I'm going to stick to, right, I'll stick to like my work day, right, not my, like I'm not going to say. Why? What do you mean Why? because that's a
0: why stick to your
1: oh i mean i could just say my dog like my dog brings me joy because that's what dogs do right like he when he when i get
0: that's their sole purpose in life is to bring their talk about power dynamic there. yeah
1: i <laughs> i have it all and i give it to him
0: i mean that's true that's the truth vulnerable one that's yeah like, no yeah oh, i love sitting in... i
1: i got you know my dog is 10 years old and he's awesome and big and you know lays around a lot but sometimes he gets excited and gets the zoomies and acts nuts and it's like that brings me joy absolutely 100 i love
0: it the second question is what is the best or worst piece of advice you've ever been given
1: the advice that i like to give is like nobody cares about literally anything you do so <laughs> do whatever you want
0: did someone give you
1: that advice? Uh, not in those words, but I've definitely been given the advice of: if you like trip walking down the street and you're like embarrassed, like literally nobody cares, right? If you think you have a bad hair day, like absolutely nobody notices your hair, um, and if they did, they don't care. So, yeah, I think it's it's probably this some version of an advice of like: don't be self conscious, do what feels right to you, like. Nobody, nobody cares.
0: cares. Another person said uh, a little bit more eloquently <laughs> was like, I think it's a Dr. Seuss quote, or it was just like, those that matter don't mind and those that mind don't mm-hmm. matter.
1: As I said so, most people don't mind.
0: Yeah. Yours is just like nobody minds. <laughs> this is a whole other thing. But I think women are conditioned to to not like that is that was very hard for me to accept when you said yeah. that. Because I think women are conditioned to be like, everybody cares. They care about your hair. They care about your clothes. They care about the way you walk, the way you come into it. Like all this, this stupid yeah, shit that yeah. nobody cares nobody about. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. Like really nobody, nobody cares. cares. And if you do care, I think you got to refocus what you care about.
1: It's Like more of like the, you know, uh, perfect is the enemy of the good, right? Like this idea of, you know, over-analyzing, over- Thinking kind of every simple decision, right? When ultimately, like you as a writer, if you forget that period, it's gonna haunt you for I don't know how long. But literally, someone might see it. A troll might go, "This woman can't write; she forgot a period." And then ninety nine percent of everybody else doesn't really give a shit. Yeah, absolutely. It can haunt you, right? Are you? I'm gonna look over this like article forever, and at some point, you gotta hit submit and just feel like i did the thing
0: yeah perfect is also like a shadow feeling of like shame mm-hmm. you're trying to not mm-hmm. you know you're, you're trying to not feel shame or anything and so you, you got to do everything perfect luckily i have never struggled with perfectionism i'm just like oh well there's no period right
1: <laughs> like, right and like maybe um, it's you know a version of i mean shame doesn't help anybody right like, i don't find that.
0: Wow. Yeah. So that conversation is super important for me. I think these ideas of philanthropy, whether or not you've been in philanthropy for decades or you're just new to the sector in itself, I think we're in a unique time where people are demanding more accountability from large corporations who are using their philanthropic endeavors to sort of launder their reputation. As I mentioned, Jonathan has some really great insight into the sector as a whole, and I'm really excited to share this on Giving Tuesday. Make sure that you go out, you support your favorite nonprofit today, and happy Giving Tuesday, everyone.